Hello and welcome to the world's famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor as well as the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News in Denver, Colorado, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be uh, part of the program, you can always contact me on any of the contact links in the description of this show. The listener hotline is 303-832-0217. And, of course, we would love for it, uh, we being me, uh, <laughs> would love for you to uh, make sure you rate uh, the show uh, with a positive reaction or negative, whatever the case may be, and, uh, and do that so uh, we can climb the charts, as Casey Kasem would say. Uh, so on the show today, I'll be speaking to someone I had on the show a couple of years back. It was back on episode 104 that we spoke to Emily Kleinfelter. And back then, Emily was on the show to talk about what she was learning about transportation planning because she was a student at the University of Colorado in Denver. Now she is in the real world and working for the Denver Streets Partnership, and basically they are an advocacy group for pedestrians and bikes and that sort of thing. So the reason I'm having Emily on the show again is that she contacted me after I was reporting on this pedestrian crash who uh, this person was walking in the middle of the road in downtown Denver was hit by a car and she tweeted to me as I was describing what was happening with the scene and with the road being closed and she tweeted to me saying the problem is with the way we get around and that our streets are designed to be deadly I wanted to get her perspective on this because I think it shows how some people want to transform the streets especially in urban areas in densely packed downtown areas, doesn't matter if it's here in Denver or anywhere around the country, and the thinking that pedestrians, when they're in the street, are never wrong, that pedestrians always are in the right, even if they're just strolling down a middle of a major street in any city, USA, they are always right because the way planning has been over the last 150 years of planning roads whether it was for a horse and buggy or just a horse, uh, or now for uh, automobiles, that they are designed on purpose to kill people. And so, I mean, never mind that it's it, that, that the, somebody's walking in the road. It's, it's never the pedestrians who are wrong. Never. It's always the driver who is wrong and the people who plan the road in the first place. Not everyone agrees. I've had similar conversations, uh, and, and even one a while back with Andy Bosselman, uh, who he was at the time the editor and executive director of Streets Blog Denver. That was back on episode 120. I had him in the studio when I was uh, still doing this in the studio and not in my basement uh, for uh, basically an entire hour. And he and I, I kept pressing him on this issue, but he believes that a pedestrian is never ever at fault. It is always the uh, design of the road and the driver, any driver, is at fault. Um, and I've posted a link to both episodes, so you can go back and listen. And and I think you know the Andy the Andy interview was really interesting, especially since the scenario was there was this uh, uh, I, I believe this person was drunk, this this pedestrian person was drunk, crossing a major road. There's two lanes either going each way, the 45 mile an hour speed limit. It was early in the morning, like 5 a.m. or so when this person was walking across the road and was hit by a guy in his work truck 
just going to work. And to Andy, that driver was at fault because the road was designed to be deadly. Not that the pedestrian was at fault who didn't wait to go uh, or walk down, I think it was 50 yards to the crosswalk to where there was a traffic light and a pedestrian crossing where he could have hit the button, crossed safely, uh, and done, and then come back the 50 yards to, to cross the street safely. It was the fault of the road design and the fault of the driver, uh, period. And, and the pedestrian, as I recall, was not killed uh, still. It, it, it was really interesting when I was talking to Andy. He just believes in his heart that there is no situation where a pedestrian is at fault. And so we'll talk about this with Emily, and she'll be on here in just a minute. But but I first recently aired a story uh, and received a ton of comments about it. It's from Forrest from Conifer, Colorado, who wrote to me saying, What's driving you crazy? How come there are so many cars parking on the shoulders of Pena Boulevard right before the airport terminals in clearly marked no parking zones? Pena Boulevard, by the way, if you're not from Denver, it's the main road going to and from Denver International Airport. And you're not allowed, uh, according to signs and and the uh, city and county of Denver, to park along that major roadway because it's a safety issue, basically. And they don't want people waiting there. They have that special. And it's like this at any airport across the country. They especially design parking spots uh, for people and or or. Uh, ride share. That's what uh, Forrest is. He's, he's a ride share driver. Uh, and that's why he contacted me. Uh, but he sees it all the time. And, and But there are places to wait if you're a ride share driver or any kind of driver going to pick up or drop off people at an airport. Well, Forrest continues. For as long as I can remember, cops would not allow people to park there and would give out a very hefty fine for parking. So how come Denver police no longer doing anything about these vehicles? The vehicles will have flashers on and parked on the shoulder, causing a major safety issue. And multiple times I've had to slam on my brakes for traffic caused by these people. Well, obviously, Forrest, stopping and parking along a busy road to the airport or really anywhere, it's not a good idea, especially while airport-bound drivers go whizzing by at at 55 miles an hour or faster. Now, those drivers on Pena Boulevard create a hazard for those parked on the shoulder, especially when they park on top of or right next to that white line separating the right lane from the shoulder. And the drivers who are parked also create a hazard for the drivers on Pena Boulevard, especially if they have to swerve to slow down significantly after a driver who was parked decides to pull out into traffic unexpectedly. Now, Pena Boulevard is part of Denver International Airport which is owned and operated by the city and county of Denver. It's like that in, in most cities around the country. The roadway, as well as the airport roads and grounds, are patrolled by Denver police officers that are specially uh, assigned to the airport, and they're also patrolled by airport operations. Yet it appears from several of the videos that were sent to me by Forrest that Denver police are not preventing drivers from stopping on the shoulders of Pena Boulevard, and in fact... The parking problem is worse than ever with drivers stopping now on the left side as well as the right side, and it makes it even more dangerous. In one of the videos sent to me on a a recent Friday night, I counted over 100 parked cars on the shoulder of the road. So it's not just a couple of people. It is a monster problem, and a lot of people are doing it. When I talked to the Denver Police Department, their uh, public infor- information officer, one of them, 
told me that their officers have seen an increase in vehicles attempting to park along the shoulder, and they work with airport operations to address the issue. Clearly, from the videos I've seen, even after talking with Denver police about it, they're not doing enough to address this issue because it is still happening. Now, most drivers were waiting on the right shoulder, but some were uh, standing on the left, very close to that line separating the fast lane from the shoulder. Now, rideshare driver Derek, he told me that this issue has been going on for months, a separate rideshare driver from Forrest. He mostly is frustrated when he calls the airport and he reports this issue because he sees it all the time, and then he sees nothing change. He told me this. I get the same canned response from the airport each time I report something regarding a car is parked on the shoulder. A few days ago, I saw a Denver police officer drive by all the offending drivers without stopping. He didn't have his lights on or anything. He just kept driving by, by them. Passengers that I'm ta- taking uh, ta- taking to the airport routinely ask me why there are people parked there. I tell them they're parked illegally and the airport does nothing about it. Unquote. That's exactly what it seems like is happening. (laughs) Nothing is being done about it. Now, the airport has a designated area to park and uh, for you to wait for passengers if you need to wait out there uh, for a flight or whatever. But it seems very few people want to do that and would just rather pull off the road, wait on the shoulder until it's time to get going again. It's, It's funny because in one of the videos that was sent to me, I counted a very large number of drivers actually using the shoulder of the exit ramp. That leads you to that passenger waiting parking lot to pull off to, but they pulled off on the exit ramp on on the shoulder instead. Clearly, they don't want to go to that parking lot, and police are not interested in stopping this problem. Now, on the website for that parking area, it's called Final Approach, and it reads, For safety reasons, vehicles are not allowed to park on Pena Boulevard or roadways leading to Jeppesen Terminal. But according to the drivers who drive Pena Boulevard, From what I've seen and what uh, I've been sent, that is not what's been happening. When one does it, more will follow, right? That's kind of the way it is. When when one or two or three people start doing something and then open the gates because everybody's (laughs) going to do it, and and that's what's happening out at the airport. Now, the airport officials, I, I talked to them, and they continue to try, as they say, to educate drivers and passengers through their social media channels their website, and overhead signs to attempt to curb the illegal parking problem. And clearly, that too isn't working. Denver police tell me it isn't a staffing issue. I asked for them to provide me with the numbers of officers they have uh, this year compared to the number of officers that they had on duty in years past. They said they uh, wouldn't give me that information. Uh, But they did say that if they see a driver stopped on the shoulder of Pena Boulevard, Uh, The officer would first ask the driver to leave the area and move on, and they said if they did have to write a ticket, the citation is no parking tow-away zone with a fine of $50. If you go out and wrote a ticket, now, uh, of course, they would scatter like uh, roaches with the light comes on, Uh, but if you started writing a ticket to 100 drivers, there's there's a good five grand right there uh, if you want to collect some money from some folks who are parking illegally. Uh, I'm sure that the problem is not going to get better unless police are actually enforcing that no parking zone. And eventually somebody's going to get in a a serious injury when when there's a crash out there. And it's going to be nobody's fault except for the police officers and airport operations who have continued to ignore the problem. I wonder after uh, uh, this story, if somebody did get hurt out there, 
uh, if they could sue the city and or airport operations, as I'm just thinking about this, uh, because this is a clear problem that I've uh, described to them. Uh, I've described here on TV as well as uh, online. And I, I, I don't know. It'd be interesting. I mean, usually there are changes made after I air a story, um, but I haven't seen a whole lot of changes just yet. Well, only time will tell, I guess. I've been uh, saddened by the high number of recent car versus pedestrian crashes in recent weeks here in Denver. In fact, I saw one on my way to work a couple weeks ago after another recent morning where a person was killed in the street of downtown Denver. I was contacted by someone we had on the program a while back, way back on episode 104, when I was talking about the future of transportation from the perspective of an urban planning student. Emily Kleinfelter was a master's student from the University of Colorado, Denver, the last time we talked, and now she's out in the real world working for the Denver Streets Partnership. Emily, welcome back to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Hi there, Jason. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, it's nice to chat with you once again. Now you are the Community Outreach Coordinator for Denver Streets Partnership. And the last time we talked was December of 2018 when you were working on a Master's of Urban and Regional Planning at CU Denver. And you, at that time, wanted to pursue a career in active transportation. I see that you've graduated. What's it like for you now that you're in the real world? Um, it's a lot harder. <laughs> no, but it's it's a really fantastic um, experience. I don't know. I'm, I'm really, really grateful to be working in this field. Um, I think that I was happy to have chosen going into active tra- transportation and successfully, you know, pursued that, that career path. And I'm, I'm really glad that I'm sticking with it. Um, it's something I'm super passionate about. I think anybody that's ever met me can can say the same. But I I'm incredibly passionate about this work, and so um, I'm. It's like I said, it's hard, but I'm I'm happy to do this work. And and a lot has changed uh, since your school years. We've gone through a pandemic now. I wonder how that is going to change urban transportation planning uh, students and uh, learning here in the in the future. I mean, it was really turned everything upside down. Yeah, yeah, it's been, um, I don't know, I feel really, I feel really, really, really feel for the students who have been taking virtual classes. I don't know how they did that. Um, I don't think I would have been able to do that. Um, We're actually really, um, I'm really lucky that I'm getting to participate in a planning methods class um, with CU Denver this fall, and they're in person, and so it's really cool to be able to see people and interact in person with them, and they seem like they're they're keeping everything fairly similar, but um, it's it's kind of really fun to feel like it's come full circle where I was a student and now here I am uh, as like the client working for um, Denver Street's partnership and we are asking them to do a project and I'm sitting there looking at these students where I was once sitting a couple years ago. Yeah, maybe it'll take a couple of years before the uh, program or curriculum really starts to absorb what has happened over the last couple of years with the pandemic and how it's changed traffic and traffic patterns and all of that. I'm speaking with Emily Kleinfelter. She's a community outreach coordinator with Denver Streets Partnership. And I wanted to talk to you for a couple of reasons, starting with the disturbingly large number of people hit who are then injured or killed crossing the street, not only here in Denver, where we are, but really around the country, after the last pedestrian death in downtown Denver a few weeks ago, I was tweeting about it, and and that's when you contacted me saying the problem is with the way we get around and that our streets are designed to be deadly. Could you explain why you said that? Yeah. 
our our roads are designed so wide and allowing for people to drive at such incredibly fast speeds and so um they're designed like i said to, to prioritize prioritize speeding at the expense of anyone outside of a car um and so we know how to to control that we know that slower speeds um and separating modes of transportation um is what's going to allow for us to um to calculate for this human error that's going to occur when you've got people that are driving distracted and try and uh, prevent these crashes because at the end of the day all of these traffic crashes are preventable and our street design should account for like should accommodate for human error you've mentioned about vehicle size that oh, we're driving around in vehicles that are way too large well isn't that an opinion that is very subjective? Uh, it, it, it's maybe too large for you, but maybe not too large for somebody else. Right. Um, well, if we look at how large these vehicles are in the terms of a pedestrian or people that are outside of a car, um, they are they are a mode of transportation that isn't necessary for where they're at. I think in my point of my perspective, I think that um, the larger the vehicle gets, the more dangerous it is for people outside of it. Um, and I, I don't really believe that we people are needing. Um, <laughs> you're right, that, that is a personal opinion. But I think that uh, we have to to understand that the larger the vehicle is, the more dangerous it becomes to people outside of it. And so we have to design our roads to create a space that is safe for the people that are choosing to not be in these larger vehicles. Um, and some people don't always have that choice. And if they are going to be in the same space as it, and we're designing our roads to be like highways in city centers, then these large vehicles, the likelihood of them, of somebody um, surviving a crash if they're hit by a larger vehicle is much lower than if they're hit by a smaller vehicle. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in just just a second. But you, you say that it's more than necessary for to, to get around. But if I'm in a rural area, I might need a, a vehicle of that size. If I have four children, I need a larger vehicle to get them to where I need to go. Is this more of a your the overall sentiment is these vehicles that are larger are not welcome in the downtown urban core of any downtown urban core, or they're just not welcome at all anywhere on any road? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's not even about that. It's not about one mode versus the other. It's about making sure that everyone in Denver can get around safely, regardless of their mode of tra transportation. Um, you know, it's, and again, it's not taking, taking away, trying to take away these options for people that choose to drive that. It's about expanding the travel options so that people who are wanting to travel outside of those types of vehicles are, are able to do so and are able to do so safely. Um, you know, transportation is the, is the second highest household cost next to housing. And so we need to expand transportation options to keep our city accessible to people of all income levels so that people aren't having to maybe live out in more rural places. Um, I mean, obviously that's it's up to people's choice, but you know, we know what it takes to prevent these traffic crashes. We know that it's slower speeds. It's um, modes in separated time and space. We know how to, to, to solve these things. And so um, what it, it, it takes is that we need more funding for design changes. And we need for city leaders to take this seriously. I mean, these are people's lives. Um, and 
they're they're dying on our city streets and we have city leaders that aren't doing anything about it right now i'm speaking with emily kleinfelter she's the community outreach coordinator for denver streets partnership we're talking about pedestrian safety and road design especially in uh, downtown urban core and, and speaking about r- uh, car design I, I was talking to someone a while back here on the show about the changes in car designs and that they're they're now more flat in the front uh, rather than pointy like they used to be. So a person that is hit, they don't really roll up on the hood like they might in the past, and the injuries are, are more serious. And before you say it's only SUVs or trucks, I saw a newer Mini Cooper yesterday also with a large flat front. So it's not just big trucks and, and SUVs. It can also be the smaller vehicles also with the flat fronts. Right. And... I mean, it's it's not just the vehicle too. I mean, it, it, again, it's, it comes back it comes back to the street and how we're designing our streets for these people and whatever vehicle of choice it is, um, whether it's a it's a large SUV or it's a small little Honda Civic or something like that. We're we're designing our streets to prioritize them for whatever car it is to to move at a quick pace and over the priority of a person's safety outside of a vehicle. Um, like in Denver right now, we're prioritizing moving vehicles fast over moving people safely outside of them. And so it doesn't really, again, matter whether it's a large SUV or a small car, being outside of it is a danger to people right now on our streets. And so, and these are preventable crashes. And so we have to call on city leaders to take action. And that means whether it's decreasing our speed limits from 25 to 20 on residential streets, or it's putting more funding in the city budget for protected, actually high comfort bike lanes and having more sidewalks. I mean, the city of Denver is so lacking in its sidewalks because right now the property owner is responsible for building out the sidewalks and maintaining it. And sidewalks are an equity issue all across the city. So that means that we see broken, missing, or inadequate sidewalks all across the city, which then leads to more of these pedestrians that you hear about getting hit and killed because they're not provided with a safe way to get to their destination. I do agree that some of the sidewalks around uh, Metro Denver, really around a lot of cities, not only here in Colorado, but across the country are in are woefully inadequate. And I've always thought we should have much wider sidewalks, almost like a pedestrian highway, if you will, make people want to be on the sidewalks and not get in the street. The same thing with bicyclists, make them want to stay on a bike path rather than that, that's maybe separated from the regular street and uh, reduce those conflicts that can arise from people and vehicles. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to see people eight to 80 on the streets feeling comfortable riding a bike and taking a walk or getting to their destination without having to use a vehicle if that's not if that if they don't need to um it's it's not like like i said it's not one mode over the other we're not trying to force things on people but at the end of the day our streets are dangerous by design and so we're we're trying to advocate for the city leaders to take action to create a you know a safer street space for all users um we're all victims at the end of the day of the of poor street design, whether it's the person that's driving the car or it's the person that 
is the victim of getting hit. Um, and so that's that's what's at the end of the day the the most serious issue here. And we these are people's lives that are being lost. And um, city leaders have to have to do something about that. In the city of Denver, we are looking at we've had sixty three fatal crashes. Um, and last year at in the in the year of twenty twenty, we had fifty seven fatal crashes. So we're well over that that mark. And just in the last uh, let's see three and a half months. We've had 13 fatal crashes, and six of those were um, pedestrian crashes. Four of which those were hit and runs. You know, so this is these are people's lives, and we're we're just having city leaders sweep it under the rug like it's nothing happening. When this is a truly bad issue that we have to talk about, and we have to do something about, and we know the solutions. I'm speaking with Emily Kleinfelter. She's the Community Outreach Coordinator for Denver Streets Partnership. You were talking about the street design, and uh, I take Logan Street from downtown Denver from uh, the TV station as I'm going back towards the interstate. The speed limit there is 30 miles an hour. It feels narrow in there anyway because you have this median along the center long part of it, and then you have the folks that are parking uh, along the uh, right side, so it feels narrow in there. But nonetheless, I had somebody that was tailing me really tightly as I was trying to go uh, at 30 miles an hour, so there are people that want to go faster than the speed limit. If you you drop the speed limit to 20 miles an hour to 15 to 10, there are still going to be people that want to go faster, and without enforcement, there's no way to stop that. Well, so... That's where the money comes in for design changes. We need, because there, we don't need to put money towards enforcement when we know how to design in self-enforcing infrastructure. And when I say self-enforcing infrastructure, I'm talking about things like speed bumps. Those are going to force people to slow down. So they're not even going to have the option to speed. How can and you so, ever, there's, it doesn't seem like you would ever be able to get that approved to put speed bumps on major city streets in around a major urban area, not only here, but anywhere, even even in Phoenix, where you're not ha- going to have to deal with snowplows. In certain, I mean, you, you do see it happening, though, in some major cities across the country. We even see it in municipalities outside of, right outside of Denver, where they have speed bumps. Obviously not on your large major, major city arterials, but on your more neighborhood streets, like you're talking about Logan, where you've got people that are going to be going way over the speed limit, those are places where a speed bump is a viable option because you don't need to have some sort of person out there and uh, an officer enforcing it when the resources could be used elsewhere. And that is not just going to make the city safer for people who are driving and going speeding, but that is ultimately going to make the entire street space uh, safer for all users for the people that are biking and the people that are walking and just ultimately it's going to increase the value of the street of the homes on the street like it's going to have a positive benefit for everyone as much as some people in that like 0.2 seconds of discomfort it might cause them to slow down and have to go for go over a speed bump it's ultimately going to benefit everybody in a much more positive manner 
But the argument against speed bumps or speed humps, if they're the lower ones, is that <laughs> they, they can damage your vehicle. You're using your brakes more often, wearing those down, so that's a regressive tax because you're having to do more maintenance on your vehicle. You're starting and you're stopping instead of keeping a traffic flow uh, that is consistent. So you're wasting more gas by doing that, and then you're slowing down uh, the progression of the, the traffic flow in, in one direction. So there are... Um, those obstacles to overcome, uh, at least trying to get a proposal to install uh, speed bumps or speed humps on on city roads. Yeah, um, I would would counter with the fact that, um, you know, it's pretty damaging to a human when they are hit by a car that's going too fast because there isn't a speed bump um, for them to be driving at a slower speed so they're more aware of all the other users in the road. Um, you know, you mentioned driving on Logan and having someone tail you. And, you know, I I live in, I live right over in the neighborhood and I bike on Logan because it was one of the only options for me a north-south route to get to where my destination was. And having cars pass me that closely um, at a high pace, you know, high speed is, is really terrifying. If I had had a self-enforcing infrastructure like speed bumps or, um, you know, uh, raise raise medians, things to, to force the cars to slow down, because um, it already is doing a pretty good job of it, uh, narrowing the road space there on Logan that we're, we're talking about. I mean, that's a pretty darn good road diet. Um, but somehow cars still manage to find a way to try and pass me at a, at a high pace. And so putting in something like a speed bump eliminates that factor as well and gives me at least some other element of safety um, and ultimately like I said makes the street space safer for everyone how much responsibility do pedestrians have to cross the street safely <laughs> well I, I I don't think that um, it should be focusing on the, the pedestrian I mean we have to come back to the issue that our roads are just not safe for people outside of the outside of cars. But and is it so, okay if a pedestrian crosses in a non-crosswalk area if they are um, crossing in an area that might be a blind curve area? I mean, is there are they just stepping out in front of vehicles that might not realize that they're about to step out because it's not at a crosswalk or at a stop sign, something like that? Yeah, it, the, the, again, the responsibility isn't on the pedestrian there. It's on the fact that our streets are designed to be unsafe. They they didn't ask to be put in that scenario where they they are having to cross at a at an unsafe space. Um, you know, most oftentimes when people are choosing to jaywalk, it's because it's the it's the quickest destination. And when you think about when you're driving, you're given that in your vehicle, and so. Pedestrians are oftentimes sort of a second-class citizen in terms of infrastructure, and they're just trying to to make do with what they're they've been given. Um, and you know, they're they're not they're they're victims in the part of a dangerous design as well. Um, so the design the, of a regular, let's say, uh, over in downtown Denver, pick any intersection you want. Uh, 17th and Arapaho or anything, doesn't matter, uh, where we used to have the Barnes dance where you could actually go corner to corner instead of just across one side or the other. Um, you're saying that those streets are designed to kill and hurt pedestrians when there are 
stop lights that stops vehicle traffic. There are lights that come on for the pedestrian to tell that person when it is safe to cross the road and when it's not. And yet it's still the street design that is that that is the problem. Well, that's a that's an example of where there's been a solution and uh, put in place. But which you look at other places across the city, you go to federal, you go to Colfax, you go to Colorado, draw right. high injury networks where you've got people who have they go. You're, you're talking about a dense urban center where people can cross every couple of 500 feet or so safely. And people are moving at slower speeds as well because it's a denser area. But then you move to our high in, our high injury networks, like I said, like our arterials, like Colorado and Colfax and and um, Federal and Sheridan. These places where you've got really long expanses, like like half mile stretches, where there's no possible crossing at all. There's just no um, marked crosswalks. There's no intersection at all but there's still destinations that people need to get to. And so your pedestrians who are there, who don't maybe have access to a vehicle, what other options are they going to have? There are, so cro- just, to, just to be a uh, counterpoint to that, along Colfax and Federal, I know the streets very well, they do have every block, there are crosswalks there, maybe not a stop light, or obviously a stop sign on the major arterials, but there are usually crosswalks in those areas, and they are set up at certain distances. I know a lot of the problems on Federal, right near 14th and Howard Place and Colfax, comes from the uh, folks that are getting dropped off for the bus, and they just want to run across the street and not walk down maybe the 50 yards to the uh, intersection, use that to cross safely, and then get back over to the other bus stop or the uh, nearby light rail station. The same thing happened uh, with somebody who was hit on Peoria near 6th Avenue, where instead of wanting to go down the 50 yards to the uh, crosswalk and the traffic light, which is in place to help the pedestrians cross, they just run across over to the Burger King and uh, right there in the middle of the mid-block. And so it, it, they're putting themselves at risk. Wouldn't you agree that they're running in the middle of a, of a road outside of a crosswalk area? I would say it's that the, the infrastructure is, is missing the mark. I would say that the, that the engineers who went out there didn't actually observe the way that people were using this space. And and imply, apply the correct infrastructure for how they were using it. If, if you go out there and observe how the people, like you said, are getting off the bus and we're, we're moving across this space, why was the intersection, why was the, the crossing then put in over there? Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, you oftentimes have a disconnect between the people that are designing it, between the people that are actually using it and, um, experience it on a day-to-day basis and so they it's like what we call like a windshield perspective of people who really only experience this from the the perspective behind a car um, and don't understand what it might feel like to experience it as somebody that is having to get around um, on foot or or as a transit user and so you know like we're we're talking about um, crossing these high injury networks that somewhere that's maybe not a marked crossing but I've gone out there and sat on federal and observed uh, people crossing. Yes, in a non-marked, there's no marked crosswalk there, but it's because you have two high pedestrian uh, destinations where are across the street from one another. So why isn't there a marked crossing? Why isn't there 
people that are that are noticing this and coming in and putting the money towards having a safe space for people to cross here rather than seeing lives lost because people are not being prioritized to, to move safely outside of a car and instead we're just prioritizing expanding our highways and moving people at, at fast speeds in their cars. But when you say expanding highways, that has nothing to do with people walking. You can't walk along the highway. So the highway set completely separate from any even major arterial road in any kind of city. The way that they're connected comes down to the way everything's connected, which is money. Is at the end of the day, it is going towards expanding, is, is going towards infrastructure that's benefiting the car, the automobile, and that's not prioritizing the people outside of it. So our sidewalks, like I mentioned, the Denver deserves sidewalks. We are currently drastically lacking in our sidewalk infrastructure. And at the current funding rate, it would take the city well over a couple hundred years. We've, I mean, Denver Street Partnership calculated it to take about 400 years at the current funding rate for the city to build out its complete sidewalk network, which is just completely un, unacceptable. And so we're saying that the city has to come, has to prioritize moving people safely in outside of a vehicle, which walking is at the end of the day, we are all pedestrians at one point or another. And so we have to prioritize that. We have to put our money where our mouth is. People are dying on our streets. And so we know that we have to put the money in the budget towards funding things like sidewalks, funding things like high comfort bike lanes that are protected and create a safe space for people of all ages and all abilities to get out there and ride their bike from point A to point B. We need to have dedicated funding towards transit. Like this all, it all interconnects towards getting people a safe space to, to move around and they're on the city streets here. I'm speaking with a community outreach coordinator for Denver Streets Partnership, Emily Kleinfelter. We're talking about uh, how street designs and uh, city streets can be improved. You have had to, with the Denver Streets Partnership, had meetings with city leaders, the mayor, maybe city council. What are they saying to you about your proposals to spend more money on sidewalks, on bike lanes, on changing design in the city streets? Uh, you know, I actually, I don't really do a lot of that. I, so I'm community outreach coordinator. So I do a lot of grassroots work. I work with our, our folks on the ground here, our supporters, and I really mobilize the people power, um, to try and, to try and influence those decision makers. I'm, I'm not really the one that sits there at the table oftentimes, um, with, with those people having those conversations. Um, but that's, that's, I really love the work that I do because I get to interact with the people who experience it on a day-to-day -day basis that are that are impacted by the work that we do, um, whether it's people that are transit dependent or they are uh, they have mobility issues, and so maybe we're helping advocate for them to be able to have a safe place to, to use their wheelchair. But I I really get to do more of that kind of work, um, and I don't don't get to follow that conversation as much. <laughs> um, but those conversations probably have been happening not only with, you know, uh, other people, maybe with D Denver Street's partnership, but also with other advocacy groups in around the city. Yeah, definitely have been happening. And they're hearing us. I mean, you know, the there are council members who are in support of this. They they know that this is an issue and, and they are they are in support. They, they 
are showing up to our events. We had just this past couple of weeks, um, we had some sidewalk uh, Palooza walking tours. Like I mentioned, we've got our Denver Deserve Sidewalks campaign. And so we've got these city uh, council members that we invited on these community-led walking tours um, to come and experience the, the what it just feels like to be a pedestrian in their district. And there were a good number of city council members who showed up. We had Councilman Cashman, um, Councilman Gilmore, and we had, um, gosh, who else? Uh, Councilman Hines and Sandoval. Um, we had a whole bunch that, that came and who care about this and understand that it's a pressing issue and are, I think, helping push this issue, move the needle forward. Um, it's just that there are other city leaders who need to be convinced and continue to put the pressure on to know that um, we have to put more money towards uh, multimodal transportation. That means more money towards transit, more money towards protected high comfort bike lanes, more, and a, a lot more money towards sidewalks. Uh, you said to me, and I and I do agree with this, that drivers are more distracted now than ever. And you said that there is zero accountability. What can be changed to make drivers uh, more accountable for driving distracted? Maybe higher fines, stronger penalties, confiscating their cars? Um, you know, I I don't have an answer to that, but... You know, again, focusing on the perpetrator, I think, is just a distraction from the bigger issue that our roads are just not safe for people outside of them. I mean, I, I don't know how to solve that. That's a big issue. You know, the, I'm I'm one person, and that's an issue that's it's a global uh, issue that we're dealing with. But what I think we do understand is that on the local level, we know that our streets are not safe, and we know how to fix that. We know that it means putting in better infrastructure for people who are moving about on bikes and are on foot and who are choosing to use transit and who want to get outside of the car they need to be able to have a dignified safe place to move about and we have to put their money where our mouth is and so we have to put that funding towards design changes on our streets to create a safe place for people to move about in our city would you like to see all streets in a downtown urban core close down to vehicle traffic and only allow pedestrian and bikes? Uh, I mean, yeah, I would. <laughs> uh, I think that would be a pretty darn nice time. I, I understand that that's a terrifying reality to some people who really love their cars. But um, I think that if you go and look at when you go on your, your, your European vacation, what do you love so much about being in those plazas, European plazas with all the people milling about and you've got the people on their little bikes and you you love that it's peaceful and you don't have all of the exhaust and the noise and everything from all the cars and then you can just enjoy the space. And obviously it all has to interconnect with land use and housing and, and that sort of stuff. And so um, it requires a lot of density for people for that kind of thing to, to actually be successful. And at the end of the day, it also requires really great transit. Um, I don't think that you would be able to just move about with just bikes and uh, foot. You also need to have a couple of options for people for transit. And we're, it's Denver, it gets cold. You get, I love bundling up and getting on the bus in the winter and getting from point A to point B without having to use my bike. What about 
the people that aren't a fan of living in densely populated areas in an apartment building in a condominium uh, with shared walls if they just want their own walls in a small yard and or, or if they wanted a bigger yard or whatever they wanted is, is do you see a, a, a time where we're going to have the uh, separation of a downtown urban core area where you basically close it off have the people that want to be in that downtown uh, congested with population, not necessarily with vehicle traffic, uh, closed off for just people. And then outside the ring, you have people that can get to the city, but they have to stop at a certain place and then walk in, bike in, uh, scooter in, whatever they want to do, take transit in, something like that. But just basically make a ring around the core of of a downtown area, whether it's here or Nashville or Pittsburgh or anywhere. I mean, again, you look to European cities, and as, as scary as that may sound to some people in that in the reality, that's what you're looking at when you go to some of your favorite European cities and what you enjoy most about them is that you're able to get around and have the freedom to move without being restricted by a vehicle. People kind of love to talk about the freedom of a, of a car, and yeah, it's freedom to get out into the way, way, way open roads, but when you're actually in the city, like most people, like, you know, who are, are driving and stuck, they are traffic. You know, there, there is no freedom behind the wheel in my, in my, from my perspective. Um, whereas with the walking or, or biking, I feel like I have a lot more freedom of movement. Um, and I'm just asking to do so safely. I want to be able to, to get around my city with dignity and, and safely move from point A to point B without being, um, you know, fearing for my life if I'm crossing the street or or just riding in a bike lane. The uh, opinion I've had for a long time is that we should have a series of bike highways, if you will, like the Cherry Creek bike path that is separated from vehicle traffic. So if you don't close roads, uh, you know, in the dirt downtown core yet, where you actually have the mix of vehicle and bikes and pedestrians, you can actually have, uh, you know, just bike only highway highways, if, if you will, or you could even take a, a secondary road, close it down to vehicle traffic and just make it a bike highway. Not necessarily something like Broadway that does carry a lot of vehicle traffic, but a couple streets over, let's say a Logan, something like that, uh, where you make it into a bike highway that can be designed to be safer to move bike riders faster without the conflicts between cars and and uh, bikes or pedestrians and then leave the major arteries to move vehicle traffic what do you think about that i love it let's do it i mean realistically we are not i think we're not trying to again fight out one mode over the other we're just asking for a safe place to move about and so if that means taking away a whole road from cars that would be fantastic in my mind. I mean, I could never see it happening because you see people go up there, throw their arms up and have a, with pitchforks when you try and take away their parking. So, I mean, I couldn't even, or take away a lane of traffic. I couldn't imagine if you tried to take a whole street from somebody, um, especially for, for bikes. But I think that the people who ride bikes would tell you that we would absolutely love it. A place where you could move about freely without the fear of a vehicle coming anywhere close to you um and you probably would use see all other types of users you know you people people walking and 
going out on scooters or skateboards or those little one wheels, like rollerblading. I mean, we, I would love to see more and more streets across the city taken away from vehicles and turned into space just for, for people walking and biking. And that's what we saw during the pandemic. You know, when we saw shared streets, um, those were incredible. And we heard all across the city, great feedback from residents that they love them, but the city has taken them away. Um, for the most part, they, they're planning on doing some analysis to see where they can bring them back and, and how they can improve on them. But, you know, we're hearing that creating a safe, completely separate space for people that are using modes of transportation, like walking and, and biking and scooters, they would love to have that separation from, from vehicles, complete separation of space. Um, you know, one of my favorite places to ride in town um, that feels like we need more of it is on Brighton Boulevard, where you have that grade separation of between a curb and the cars. You know, there's, there's the cars on the street and then there's a curb and I'm up on the sidewalk basically um, on the bike path next to the pedestrians. And I feel so much safer riding there than I would when I've got a quote unquote protected bike lane. Um, and so <laughs> again, what it all comes down to is putting our money where our mouth is and, and saying, okay, we're going to fund these projects. We're going to put in these dedicated bike paths or these dedicated um, bike lanes and we're going to fund sidewalks. I mean, we're, and that's the thing too, is that if we're creating a safe place for people to walk, then more people are, and safe place for people to bike, just it, it, we're creating a, a safer environment for everyone and it's a happier city. Um, and I don't know. I, it's just, it's not a story, um, about like, like I said, like taking one thing away from another, this is just about people's lives and, and making a safe place, um, for people to, to move about in our city. But you are taking one well, way from another for another. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, out of your suggestion, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, doesn't that seem like a fair trade-off? I mean, how many roads in this city are for cars? Well, the, like every the, single one of them. Yeah, of course they are, and <laughs> and everyone everyone can be used by a bicyclist and by a pedestrian and by everybody. But how safely can we use them? Well, that's the question uh, that you have to ask <laughs> per individual person because there are going to be people people who drive anywhere unsafely. There's going to be people who bike unsafely. There's going to be people who walk unsafely. Right. And that's at the end of the day, when it comes, we have to design for human error. People are going to make mistakes. Um, people make poor decisions. You know, it just, it happens. But we know how to design out of those type of mistakes as best as we possibly can. Every single crash is preventable and we can design out of it. Um, it's just that we're not putting our money, we're not, we're not funding the projects that can do this. The last time you were here on the show with me, I asked you about how you think we're going to get around in the next 5, 10, 25 years. Now that you have a few more years looking into this and you're out in the real world here, I'll ask you the same question. How do you think we're going to get around going forward up to the next 25 or so years? Mm. Um, I would hope that we're going to continue to get around by biking and walking and 
Um, I really hope that Denver starts to put a lot more funding towards transit and we have so much potential there and people want it. I think I hear from people constantly that they would use transit if it, if it got people where they needed to go um, more reliably, more affordably. Um, and so I would love to see a Denver future that is just so multimodal with people biking and walking and scootering and, and taking the bus or taking the, the light rail somewhere. Um, and, you know, I, I don't see the car going anywhere. I understand that they're still going to, I have a car, you know, I get it, but I would love to see our car trips decrease. Um, you know, we, there's, there's so many great things to be that people love about Colorado, but I know that so many people love being able to see the mountains and go out and enjoy them and see the blue sky. And we didn't get nearly as much of that this summer. And people want to say it's because of forest fires and yeah, forest fires played a part but there was also so many people back out on our streets driving again and that plays a part all of that car exhaust is going into our atmosphere and it is hurting our greenhouse gas emissions and we are hurting our climate and so if people want to keep enjoying these beautiful however my 300 days of beautiful blue skies and sunshine in denver we have to think about that future and it's going to be a multimodal future that i i want to see in denver also part of the uh, episode that we did way back when uh, was talking about how your bikes were stolen. Did you ever <laughs> get them back? Did you ever hear about them? Was it just a lost cause? What happened with that? They were a lost cause, unfortunately. But I can give you, I um, just recently had a friend whose bike was stolen um, and was able to be a little vigilante and help her retrieve it back. Um, so that was a nice, um, tell me about that. How did that happen? I, I, um, I've made a lot of friends in all of different, the bike scene across Denver. And so I've got some folks who work in, in the courier business and, um, my friend had posted a social media picture of her bike and I, uh, I reposted it to my social media and a friend who's a courier happened to see it. And then, um, he was out about doing a delivery and he spotted it at a camp downtown and he sent me a text. And so I happened to just be out and about as well and hopped in my car and drew, drove over there and um, called on some backup from fellow courier guys at Jimmy John's and had about four guys with me. And we just walked over to the, the gentleman and really, really kindly just said, Hey, like, this is not your bike. Um, I'm going to take it back now. And they didn't really like, put up a fight. They just kind of, they accepted it and we just took it back and walked away and it was kind of terrifying, but also really exhilarating. And, um, yeah, and she was really grateful. I mean, the thing was basically totally like, and no, no, no scratches, no nothing, just some chocolate ice cream dripped on it. But otherwise it was in, in great shape and she got her bike back. Wow. Yeah. When I, when I had a, uh, when there was a huge camp outside of our TV station in downtown, uh, there was somebody that had basically an, enough bikes to open up a bike shop. Uh, had a table with uh, uh, with gear that you could just like they, you would have over turn bikes, um, mm-hmm. where where he was fixing bikes, redo, I mean, doing stuff, and I'm sure just stolen, steal, you know, and then uh, fixing and then reselling, uh, probably for drugs. But that's uh, that that is happening. It's a rampant problem uh, at some of the camps. Yeah, I I think that there's a much bigger theft issue in Denver than, um, I mean, that could be a whole other episode that should do is just talking about bike theft in Denver. 
Um, and it's just because it's so discouraging from the standpoint of an advocate because I so often hear people saying that they, they would love to ride bikes more, but they just don't have um, a safe place to store it or they don't feel like they can lock it up comfortably and know that it's going to be there when they return or even if they're, you know, in their home, like I said, there's, they, a lot of people don't have, they can't bring it into their, their actual home. Cause right now in, you basically have to sleep with your bike for it to be safe. Um, I mean, if it's even in a secure parking garage, uh, it, it could get stolen. And, and I think it's because there's maybe some petty thievery happening, but you know, in my, this is me just speculating, but I, I would like, like to think that there's like some sort of ring going on, some theft ring, because it's really nice bikes that are getting stolen and it's all across Denver um, and people, and they're just not turning up. And that's what's more confusing is it's like, where are they going? Um, and yeah, it's just, it's also, it's just an, it should be an issue for like insurance people. It should be an issue for so many more people, but um, at the end of the day, for advocates, for me, it's, it's an issue because people want to ride bikes, but if they don't feel like they can keep their bike, if you know, if it gets stolen, they, they there's no bike to ride. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, because it, and if you had a car that was a stick shift, nobody's going to steal that. So it's a, t- <laughs> a little different. With yeah, the- yeah. I mean, I'm I'm grateful that I can <laughs> keep mine in my apartment, and I've always been able to work at a place where I've got secure bike parking, but that's something you even think about like in downtown Denver. Um, you know, if we want to see more people biking into downtown for work and commuting, we have to provide safe places for people to, to store their bikes at their office or wherever they're going. Cause you know, who's going to go and park their bike for a full day's work out on 16th street mall and confidently know it's going to be there when they come back. Yeah. You know, that's, it's, it's just, not exactly like the reality, unfortunately, that we live in. And so we have to create, um, and you know, when I, when I talk about safety, like that's another aspect of it, whether it's on our streets, creating it so that people can move about. And then once they get to their destination, locking their bike up safely and they know it's going to be there when they get back. Um, it's all, all connected. <laughs> well, it's been a fun conversation, Emily. Emily Kleinfelter, Denver Streets Partnership Community Outreach Coordinator. You can get her on Twitter as well. Her Twitter handle is at Bike This City, uh, and you can, uh, I guess, uh, comment to her or uh, uh, ask her questions if you would like on her Twitter handle as well. Yep, hit me up there. Thank you so much, Jason. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for being here. Really appreciate the time, and uh, we'll talk to you maybe in another couple of years, right? All right, yeah, talk to you maybe in a couple of years. Have a great one. All right, I booked that episode now, uh, 2024, something like that. If you want to hear the original episode with Emily, you can get that as well as the original episode with Andy Bosselman in the description of this show. But I, I thought it was a good representation of where we're going and the thinking of urban planning, especially in a downtown congested area. When I say congested, I don't mean like a lot of traffic. I just mean a lot of people. Uh, a lot of uh, Denver for a long time, uh, and it's still even to this day, are building a lot of uh, condominiums, apartments that, in a way to attract people into the downtown urban core. And it is quite congested with a lot of people. And I think this is where we're going. There's actually going to be a separation of urban and suburban and rural. Basically, close off the urban area to all traffic. And make people take approved vehicles inside. 
uh, like you're going to have shared vehicles, a few of them that will be able to uh, troll through the downtown area. You'll have the buses, you'll have the trains, you'll have your pedicabs and scooters and uh, basically anything except your own vehicle that you own. And if you do own one, there, there might not even be a place anymore, I, I think, in the future to even park it in a downtown area. Or if they do have parking available, you'd have to have some kind of a special permit to just be able to drive your car to that parking area and then park it and leave it. I think it's going to start with parking. I think I think parking is really where it, it'll start eliminating city spaces. So you won't have any space uh, parking spaces on city streets anymore. That, that will be to the screams of downtown business owners who want parking in front of their businesses, who believe that that brings in uh, customers to their business. Uh, those concerns will be totally ignored, I'm sure, as parking will go away. And then certain areas will be maybe taxed to drive into. Uh, and then they're going to start closing off roads and then close off the entire downtown area to personal vehicles, except maybe if you have to just get to a parking spot and then out if, if, there, if you have a building that allows that. Where this line will be determined, I think, will be different in every city nationwide. Uh, but then there will be a need for parking areas outside of the ring because there will be people that need to get into the ring, but you won't be able to bring your vehicle in there. So you're going to have to have uh, places to park your vehicle outside the ring. And then in those areas, uh, you're going to have uh, ride shares the ones that are approved to go inside the ring or uh, buses or trains or scooters or uh, any of the like, or just walk uh, inside into the ring. And then you leave your car outside because there still will be suburban people who do, don't want to give up their vehicle, like to have a vehicle and uh, don't want to live in a downtown urban core. And so there will be this us versus them mentality, basically. Uh, there will be businesses who will want to move outside the ring because they're not going to want to be in there. There will be some businesses who will want to be in the ring, believing that that is their uh, best opportunity to be successful. Um, and, and there could be even fewer people that want to go in to a business, a, a let's say an office building that is in that situation because it's more of a hassle because people are like water. And they will always take the path of least resistance. And if you make it tough to get to a downtown core, and it takes a great deal of effort, you're going to have fewer people willing to do it. You have uh, people, let's say, uh, maybe wanting to go for nightlife, right? Uh, in in downtown Nashville or, or like on Broadway in downtown Nashville, right? Uh, th so they pretty much close off that street so everybody can walk around from bar to bar to bar to bar, right? Uh, but in these other downtown, maybe da like downtown Cincinnati, they have uh, any other major downtown area, you're going to have a separation of where people try to get into and, and the people that are in the ring. Um, how long this would take? I think it's going to vary from place to place, but, but I do think this, this type of separation is going to be coming. And it's going to create another divide of people, the urbanites and the suburbanites, the people in the ring and the people outside the ring. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how all this plays out, but it just I, I just get this feeling that that's exactly what's going to happen. And uh, maybe I'm wrong. I have no I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball, but I can I can usually have a pretty good sense of when people are passionate about something and the uh, and the folks who are 
uh, planning streets now, as you heard from Emily, uh, are young and they want to close streets. Um, so look for that in the next 5, 10, 15, whatever, 20 years. We'll see. Anyway, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can get a hold of me on any of the contact links I described in the description of this show. So, again, thanks to Emily for being on the show. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.